I'm not your textbook, bitch. Fuck off. See, I was gonna call that happy horse shit. So I'm constantly going, no, 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 stop that, put that down, don't touch that, take that out of your mouth. The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. Alrighty, let's do it. Alright, here we go. Today is Thursday, September 4th, 2014, and this is episode 82 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you tonight, sir? I am awesome. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing very well. I'm glad it's almost Friday. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, sorry that we are so late. We had the holiday and uh, I had some work stuff to take care of. So better late than never, I guess. And, uh, you know, by the way, it's it's kind of disappointing that there's really been nothing happening in the past true. week. Very dull week. Right. I mean, I guess... We could talk about flash. I was thinking we could even skip this week, but. <laughs> yes. Good, good. Well, except you for, uh, except for, uh, you know, some, what was it, nudie pictures? Well, you know, the funny thing is, I tried to leak my own pics. I, and no. it actually caused an international incident. The UN showed up and called it a crime against humanity. You gotta, and you soldiers that <clears throat> surrounded my cloud. It was it was it was weird. So now you got to go to the Hague. Well, they just decided just 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 go away. Uh, we don't want to see you around anymore. So good. Yeah. Uh, get a, get off with a warning, huh? Sort of, sort of. <laughs> they, they they also basically now are going to put a black sensor bar over any picture I post automatically from now on. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So what are you look, gonna do? They're looking out for us. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But so, uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a week. Yeah. So there's still not a ton of details, but uh, but the hypothesis, the most commonly accepted hypothesis, is that uh, a a script that came out called iBrute was used to uh, run some password guessing attacks against uh, some specific iCloud accounts. Uh, and you know, the, the, the assertion is that uh, this particular tool used, I think, the top 500 passwords. Uh, but we don't really know how the attackers came across the IP, ad- uh, not the IP addresses, but the uh, email addresses of these celebrity victims. My, you know, my only uh, supposition there is that they found, that these attackers found some association between, uh, you know, names, actual names and email addresses and some other password dump and then tried, you know, tried those, uh, uh, beyond that, it's, it's really hard to tell. Maybe there was some phishing involved, but even that you wouldn't need to know email addresses. So there's, there's still some pretty big, uh, gaps, but one of the things that I find really interesting is just the crazy advice going on and, there's outrage like I don't think I've ever seen related to a breach uh, on this particular one. Uh, I, I find it really interesting that almost, every, especially in the in the more mainstream media, the, uh, the the recommendation is always to enable two factor, right? Which you know is great, but unfortunately. It's not for this particular method of attack. It's actually not an option. And so, right. So they keep, you know, I even saw it on Good Morning America. My kids and my wife were watching Good Morning America and they, that story came on. And, and at the end of the segment, they said, and you should enable two factor authentication to avoid these kinds of problems. Well, but you, you can't in this case. So, uh, you know, there, there's, I haven't that, actually that- seen a lot of good guidance. That is not the advice and the takeaway I take from this entire situation at all. So what, what's your advice? Well, I think the common thing that I would look at here is no matter how good your intentions are, no matter how much you're trying to do the right thing, technical controls can still fail. So I'm not trying to blame the victim here, and I'm not trying to say that, that they should have known better, but I think this is a great case in point of – you can make it a lot harder for bad things to happen to you by not just assuming that everything's going to work perfectly all the time. And I think this applies as well 
in a lot of enterprise security, right? Assume, as we talk about often here, role play out what would happen if a technical control failed. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, suddenly your passwords just stopped working or someone found an exploit to a key uh, intrusion point into your organization. Ultimately, that is something that can happen. And I think that's what happened here. Uh, some people are speculating that all these folks were at the same sort of major event, like the Emmys or something like that, and perhaps somebody was doing some Wi-Fi uh, spoofing or even the cell phone Spoofing, I don't know. Um, but, you know, for those folks who are in a very, very public eye, this information is valuable. Very similar to really critical information from key folks in an organization. So think about that and think about, hey, where and how could this go bad? Yeah. yeah. Someone pointed out that uh, a lot of the password recovery kinds of strategies really break down in particular with celebrities, you know, because, yep. it, you know, who, who's your, what's your mother's maiden name? What was your first pet? All that crap's probably available on the average celebrity's Wikipedia page. Well, but, and nowadays that's available for most people in general because they post exactly. it on Twitter or Facebook. Exactly. Um, you know, and I, I'm wondering if it doesn't make sense for some of these major celebrities to start investing in the equivalent of social media bodyguards to start thinking through this stuff and helping them with this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, um, yep. But I don't know. It's So I had, I had one, uh, you know, I've, I, I like to think these things through and I had one, one idea that I think would help. You know, we, we always talk about using a different password and not, not just us, right. But the general good strategy for, for different services is to use a different password, which makes a lot of sense. But, you know, another another option is to use a different email address. Absolutely. It's rarely done, but incredibly useful. Yeah. I have, uh, I think I have 16 different email addresses, and my iCloud actually has its own dedicated email address, which, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't, obviously there's still an opportunity for failure there, but you're not going to find it in, a, in, in some other unrelated uh, database dump, so... Yeah, it's raising the bar to make it more difficult. Yep. Right. You know, and in, in, in one example that I've seen is when someone has their own domain, they can set up unlimited number of email addresses, and even shuttle them back to the same account to make it easier. So, you know, though it could get easy to guess, right? If you know, let's say you've got Bob.com and you just start using vendor name at Bob.com for whatever your signup is. They might figure that out pretty quickly. Yep. Um, yep. And say that sort of thing. So anyhow. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I would say is as much as people are jumping on, on Apple here, I, I don't know that we know for sure that they've done anything terribly wrong yet. I think the avail availability of being able to brute force a password is an issue. Uh, but otherwise, they came out and said, "Hey, this was a targeted attack, not a mass breach." Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, I, I I think you're right. the The only thing they really seem to have done wrong is is that uh, apparently and allegedly the uh, the Find My iPhone API didn't didn't lock you out after you know a certain number of failed attempts. Um, and which is allegedly again the, uh, the the method that this script was using to uh, to guess the passwords. Well, it, you know, it's a little off topic of the chart of the show, but you know, one thing that I've heard speculated is that this may not have been a one-time event. Mm -hmm. And this was something that was going on for a period of time. That there's a whole underground economy in trading this information, and there's all this speculation that somebody bought into this under, underground economy economy and leaked a bunch of this out at once. Yes. I've heard the same. So again, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it's seems more plausible to me that a one time mass attack. Mm-hmm. That this stuff was accumulated over time. The other thing that I've read that was very interesting was uh apparently iCloud does three subsequent backups of your device or whatever it is you're backing up, uh, to handle, and this is somewhat speculation, to handle corruption and other issues. So some were saying that some of these folks who thought they deleted things, if you don't sync over and over again to get three copies of your most recent syncs, 
that stuff might be there and recoverable. So one more avenue to think about, and if you've deleted something that's sensitive that you don't want to be recovered, you have to think through, is it truly deleted? Like I plan to upgrade a phone soon. I don't know exactly how, but I plan to go research. How do I wipe the data on the phone and overwrite it so it can't be easily undeleted? Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of thing that uh, in today's day and age, if you've got sensitive info, like, I don't know, naked pictures of yourself, you got to think about. And I don't think we do. No, no. But at the same time, I, I think it's it's probably, I don't want to say it's unreasonable, but I think it, it borders on unreasonable for the average person to... Uh, to, to go and spend that expend that amount of, of effort they and, and I say that because I don't even think they know that that has to be done yeah you're probably right uh, maybe this is where you know they need expert advice you know yep, but, absolutely um, you know and if any celebrities want to pay me obscene amounts of money to yeah we're available tell us tell them that we can uh, certainly work out a, a billable strategy that's right so uh, so so to be continued, there's yep. a lot we don't know about this. Uh, you know, the, the key takeaway from an enterprise perspective to me is have in mind that things can fail and what happens when they do. Well, you know, the, the, there is one thing that I started wondering from, uh, from an enterprise perspective. You know, the, the allegation here is that th- these people are downloading, they're breaking into these iCloud accounts and they're they're downloading essentially backups of these iDevices, and then they're, they're then they're running uh, the LCOMSoft uh, password cracking tool, which is there's a, apparently a version specifically to break um, i you know iDevice backup files. You know, certainly that's bad if you've got nude pictures of yourself. But what if it's not nude pictures? What if it's you know your corporate data? So there's something to think about there. It's true. There's one other thing that I found kind of humorous about this is apparently there was not just trickling out, but a big file dump. And apparently some of these picks were of one underage actress. Oh, yes, that's right. Which suddenly turns us into child porn. Yeah. And everybody went, eep! And uh, went and I, deleted the torrent they downloaded. I'm really interested to see how uh, the justice system in different countries uh, handles that if they are going to take up the mantle or if they're just going to kind of let it let it uh, blow by. I, I don't know. I don't know either. Right now, let's see. Um, okay, so right now the Celebrity Nude Photo Hack Collection is back to number two on the top 100 on the Pirate Bay. So, Hey, there you go. Currently uh, 28,500 seaters, 3,400 or so leechers. Uh, beat out by How to Train Your Dragon 2 <laughs> in 1080p. Well, well that, that's, that tells you something right there, right? And running her up in third place is A Million Ways to Die in the West. So you can see what we care about on our torrent sites these days. Yeah. That's... That concludes our torrent update for the week. So moving on to, uh, to the next, uh, <clears throat> next major bit of news is that uh, Home Depot... Has fallen victim. supposedly. Uh, well, allegedly, they're you know they're they are uh, they they are apparently investigating the in, the allegations that there is a uh, some some card fraud which apparently banks traced back to, allegedly traced back to Home Depot through the common point of purchase uh, methodology that has become very popular or very common lately. Uh, but you know, given given recent history, there's you know, it's it's uh it's it's probably uh we'll probably get some more information over the next uh next coming days and weeks. But um, I, I think the uh, the latest thing I saw is that it's there, there's a uh, an assertion that it was most of the stores involved over a longer period of time, and if that's true. It's probably a significantly larger breach than Target was. Again, if it's true. Yeah, we shall see. Um, so far, Home Depot is taking this very seriously, quote unquote. They uh, they've hired Semantic, Fishnet, 
they're engaged with the Secret Service and likely the FBI. That's all the stuff that's been publicly confirmed. Yep. And best we can tell right now, they're actively trying to identify the breach. So what that tells me is they haven't found it yet, or they're not willing to announce it yet, and they don't know yet how this happened. Yeah, I was just at Home Depot the other day, and I was giving their POS terminals the evil eye. <laughs> how'd, how'd that work out for you? Did, did, uh... I, I swipe my card anyway. Oh, well, see. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Um, so far, the reaction's fairly... I think we're seeing some fatigue over this. I think I... people are sick of it, but yep. I think people also are starting to feel it's inevitable. Absolutely. So. You know, that I had a really great discussion uh, with with a couple of people on Twitter about about this. And, you know, the interesting thing is you would you would think that the credit card economy and the credit card system is just falling apart at the seams, you know, with with all of the recent mega breaches that have happened over the past while. But the the reality is it's not. It's still a profitable enterprise for just about everybody involved. And and the reason is that even though Target had 40 million credit cards stolen, you know, there, there were only a percentage of those, a relatively small percentage of those, that actually ended up having fraud on it. And, you know, what happens is um, once once the banks are, become wise to what's going on, they start really watching the cards that had this, have the same characteristics very, very closely. And it becomes really difficult for these you know, these people to commit fraud, uh, or, or they cancel the cards outright or, or what have you. And that just gets, you know, whatever happens just gets passed back to the consumers in the form of higher, higher fees. So. Yeah. Know. It's like shoplifting. It's an acceptable level of shrink. They know they're not going to get it to zero. Exactly. Uh, but at some point you got to think the losses will, will mount either in direct costs, indirect costs, mitigation costs, to some point where the card issuers and banks are going to cry uncle. Yeah, but you don't, you're just not seeing panic, right? There isn't, yeah. banks aren't panicking in the street, and I think that's pretty telling. I think you're right. I, I think we as security folks are all like, this has to be fixed, you know, and the, the 0.001% of us in the economy who care about this stuff are like, pitchforks, march on the stores, and they just sort of, <laughs> everybody else goes, huh? Yeah, exactly. Well, that sucks. Exactly. Um, you know, I mean, people say Target did have a pretty big hit in their, you know, profits and such, and people shied away from Target. But I think we're entering an age of uh, these mega POS breaches that eventually consumers are going to go, well, it's happening to everybody. Exactly. What are you going to do? Exactly. Got to get a new card. Yep. Uh, I wonder if debit card use is going to fall off and people are going to go back to credit cards for a That's while. That's a great question. I don't know. It's. I do wonder what the breaking point is going to be, whether it's going to be the organizations that are taking the reputational hit, whether it's the, you know, the credit card issuers and, uh, you know, in terms of PCI and that sort of thing. I don't know. Or maybe this is just a manageable problem that will just continue. Yeah, or maybe PCI 4.0 will solve it all. Yeah, three point whatever years from now. <laughs> That's right. Because there's, you know, they went from two years to three years on PCI revisions, and I looked around and said, yeah, because the bad guys are slowing down in their That's right. technique progression. Absolutely. Silliness. Uh, anyhow, so moving on to our next story, this one comes from Data Breach Today, and the title is Buying Cyber Insurance, Five Tips. I, for some reason, have become very enamored with uh, the topic of cyber insurance, mostly because I know you hate the word cyber, and it gives me reasons to say the word cyber in front of you. Thank you. You're uh, welcome. I I'm just going to cut myself a little every time you do. <laughs> so their first tip is uh, is to pay attention to the concept of retroactive coverage, which is a, a you know something you don't necessarily think about when you buy this sort of coverage, because if you if you think about it, a a, a data breach that might be discovered in, sometime in the near future may have actually happened in the past, and if your coverage doesn't 
cover retroactive incidents that happened some time ago, you may not be covered. You may think that you're covered, and when when it uh, comes time for the, them to pay, obviously they're going to be looking for every out to not pay. And uh, if it happened before the start of your coverage, then you might be out of luck. So pay attention to that. Number two was uh, make sure that you are able to select your own uh, forensic and response vendors and legal counsel, because a lot of times, apparently, these policies will uh, will often specify that the uh, the insurance company gets to pick who are who your counsel is and who your forensic responder is. BYOD is another uh, another interesting one, which I actually hadn't thought about before I uh, you know before I saw this. And you know the concept here is what if the breach emanates from a uh, a device that's not owned by the by your company. And you, if your policy is written such that it covers only things that happen as a result of of your company's uh, your your company's IT, you, there may be an exclusion there. Again, thinking that you know the, the insurance company is going to try to minimize their uh, their payout. Um, fourth one is there's not a one size fit all, fits all, and in particular, the point there is that most of these cyber insurance policies are geared towards the loss of personally identifiable information like credit card numbers and that sort of thing. And so they'll pay for credit monitoring and forensic costs. But if you happen to be a utility and it causes, you know, business loss or, or other things, your insurance policy may not actually cover that. So you want to make sure that it, it specifically covers the kinds of loss that you might incur as a result of a of a breach or or what have you and uh the fifth is you know obviously since it's an article written with the assistance of an insurance broker you should go and find a knowledgeable broker probably like the one that uh that interviewed to write this article shocking totally totally but anyway i thought some of these were pretty good um the next story we have comes from cso online and this is the you know perennial clickbait. Why Russian hackers are beating us? I had to check my closet. I thought there might have been one in there right now. <laughs> there, there still could be. They from the from the picture on this article, it's you know, absolutely scary guy in a big bread hoodie. <laughs> I I don't when they have that hoodie that hangs over their eyes. How can they even type? I don't know. I mean, look. look. Look at the jawline, too, and the cheekline. This guy is far too fit to be a hacker. There's no way. And he's that's totally not Russian, either. That's, uh, well, he's certainly not in a hurry. Ooh. Dang. That was a bad joke, man. Hey, well, you know. I might edit that out. <laughs> Anyhow, um, so, so I would sum it up by saying that uh, this article says that Russians are beating us because they are way smarter than Americans. And that uh, they, the Russians, that is, view cybersecurity like people view chess. And that Russia has a very robust market for hacking tools and services. And that the government actually um, essentially looks the other way so long as the activities they uh, these hackers are are undertaking happen outside of the borders of Russia. You know, obviously it's okay for them to hack here in the US or Europe or or whatever, but don't do it inside Russia. And by the way, we might come to you, we the Russian government might come to you with a, a an opportunity that we will need your help with and we expect your uh, your assistance. I think those last two are probably the most valid of all those comments. You know, I agree. Clearly, I agree. Clearly, if they've got an environment where the government and and the local law enforcement are not coming after them in any way, they've got plenty of time to hone their craft and get really good at offensive operations. And, and I think that's if there is truth to that. I think that's probably one of the major, uh, you know, one of the major reasons is that they are you know they have more opportunity. And, uh, Much and, like the Chinese, I would say. Yeah, and 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 financial incentive too, you know. So if you if you want to be, uh, you know, you want to be rich and drive the, well, because you know they all crashed their cars over there. 
all the time. Well, that's true. And they have dash cams that they right. share with us, which is that's highly entertaining. <laughs> Sometimes they catch meteors, too. <laughs> uh, or meteors catch them. Or, yes, yes, yes. Uh, so, so yeah. Um, the one thing that I... It, so, it's basically just an article telling uh, telling everybody how Russian hackers are, are, are so good in the... The one uh, bit of advice they give you is that you should think about who's attacking you and how they might attack you, uh, and and you should uh, basically pen test that whatever likely thing they would use to attack you with. You know, so so think about think about your the likely attacker for for your organization and how they might. Enter you and enter your network and and run a penetration test on that. And, and there's then... <laughs> there's nuggets of wisdom surrounded by complete idiocy in that statement. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's, it's right here. It's written down. I, I get it. Well, first of all, let's not forget that this is also sort of pimping for a report written by Trend Micro. That's one key thing to understand here about the Russian. Underground hacking 101 economy thing. True, true. So I like the concept of at least looking at your perimeter and looking at likely avenues of attack, understanding basically your your you know your threat radius, your threat surface, you know your attack surface. What is likely to be attacked? Sure, I like that. I like testing that with a third party. Rock on. But to focus on well they might be russians and so they're going to care about xyz is folly and an exercise in futility you don't know who's going to be coming after you yeah or 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 worse you may say wow oh, the russians would never come after me right <laughs> and and i had a discussion with a customer the other day that that buys into this kind of of sort of propaganda and I'm like well what services out there can warn me when hacker groups start talking about attacking me and chatter shows up on there and I'm like, well, yeah, there are people selling that, but is it really viable? Is it really going to change your stance and your technical controls and everything else? And if it does, should, should you be doing something any, you know, different anyway? Right. And what sort of lead time would that give you as a warning? Mm -hmm. And could you actually react fast enough based on loose chatter found on IRC chat rooms and pastebin, I mean, I just don't find this as viable as a reasonable, scalable means of a defense. And by the way, I think that leaves, I think that ultimately leads to the anonymous risk, you know, which is, uh, you know, the, the, the anonymous threat these days is that they, uh, they, they, they claim that they're going to make some attack and they spin up lots of activity and they have right. really no, no capability of executing on it. And so they're, their uh, their main disruption or their main threat is actually in in driving companies to expend resources to respond to a non threat. Yeah, and you know I would I would expect that if uh, if that trend catch you know starts to catch on that you you might see, hey we're gonna we're gonna attack Acme tomorrow. Well, I I guess as a very pragmatic, not caring about your budget kind of guy at the moment. You should be expecting that every day anyway. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand how this would really play out in the real world, right? I'm, uh, let's pick on Home Depot again. You know, Anonymous stands up and says, we're going to go after Home Depot tomorrow. What's Home Depot going to do in the 12 hours they have? Yeah. If they haven't done it already. I mean, they could spin people up and they could have their sock on alert and they could raise their sort of vigilance level, but that's about the only meaningful thing they're going to be able to do. Yeah, and I, I bet you that I could be wrong, right? But I bet you the people that they compromised Home Depot or Target weren't, you know, weren't blabbing about it on no hacker it's, forum. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's self-defeating. Uh, you know, I mean, there are folks out there who are hacktivists who are, you know, have a different motivation. But ultimately, unless you've already got a plan in place that you can execute, and you've already got the technical controls, and you've already got the agreements with your ISPs, and you, I don't, I don't see how this is really helpful if you haven't already put the plan in place ahead of time. Yep, I agree with you. There, this, the uh, second bit of wisdom they give you is to spend less 
effort on antivirus firewalls and IDS and shift to technologies that detect malware and lateral movement within a network. Uh, okay, so somebody read a Gardner report. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't disagree with the concept. Not very actionable in the current version that it's stated. <laughs> well, you're supposed to. You're supposed to know what that means. I guess yeah. I, I. I agree that you should be investing in in more advanced technologies to spot malware and zero days and all that kind of jazz and get away from AV based signature based stuff. But what does that mean? Well, that means all sorts of stuff. That means having really strong SIM integration that can spot all sorts of anomalous behavior. That means that you've got good sniffers and data recorders and that can actually look for various things, including indicators of compromise, but they have their own weaknesses. You know, that means maybe having sandboxing technology from many, many, many vendors now that detonates potential malware as it enters and moves around the network. Uh, they could have put some more meat around that recommendation, I think. Yeah, they, they they sure could have. It most of the article was talking about how Russia is owning us, and <laughs> no, and no, uh, you know, no, no advice. So I I also agree. We should actually uh, think about a a show focused on lateral detection on lat of lateral movement. I yeah, I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, it's a big topic because that gets into like segmenting network environments and how you lay out and how you design and mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah, it'd be interesting. All right. Our uh, our next story comes from um, a company. It's a new company called Aorado. I don't know exactly how you say that. I think it's a Israeli company. And uh, I, I thought this was kind of cool. They released a report, and um, and so just to just to caveat it, right? It's all hypothesis and and guesswork, right? In this report, what they did is they they, uh, they they released a report that is an analysis of the target breach using all the public data that had be, has been made available. In particular, they were using the list of tools that were released in one of the reports. You know, they, there's a pretty long list of hacking tools that were were found, and so so given all of the information that was released in that list of tools, they put together a timeline and kind of methodology behind how the attackers got in. And I think it's a really interesting read. And in particular, I think it's interesting because it points out that, you know, this group is almost certainly not what you would consider a, you know, they're probably not, you know, the Chinese government or the Russian government, but these are relatively sophisticated tactics you know they they do a lot to move around in in the, the organization's network so you know just kind of uh kind of running through what they did um some of this we've talked about in the past they they compromised uh, one of target's vendors fazio mechanical with a very generic trojan citadel to steal some credentials uh then they they used those credentials that were taken from, uh, uh, presumably from a, a brow- web browser on a workstation at Fazio Mechanical, which, by the way, was only running malware bytes, not 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 even the proactive one. Uh, they used those creds to log into either the Ariba Partners Online or Developers, sorry, Development Zone um, uh, applications for targets vendors. Then they uh, they used that access to apparently upload a web shell, and they they pointed out that the the name of the web shell was apparently XML RPC uh, PHP, which is you know that's a, a relatively common component in lots of different web applications. So you might not be alarmed if you saw it, but you know obviously the content in this case was uh, relatively malicious. Once they had that web shell, they started moving around in the network. Uh, they, in particular, were querying Active Directory, looking for you know database servers. Now, one thing to note, this company that is putting this report together makes a tool to protect Active Directory. Yes. 
That's so right. that is their focus is how Active Directory can be maliciously attacked and used and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. that that's sort of their scope of vision. Yeah, and, and the reason I wanted to bring this up is because you know I, I've seen all of this stuff makes sense as I have gone through and read what's you know what's been released about the you know the target um, the target breach. This all lines up with thoughts that I've already had, so I, I've just not seen it condensed in one place. And they they yeah. don't do a big job of trying to sell their stuff, so I think that was yeah, agreed, agreed. I, I just wanted to point that yeah. out. Just no, for... you're you're right. We need to we need to make sure that's uh, disclosed. And by the way, you know n- nobody here pays us. They, everybody probably cringes when we start talking about their stuff. <laughs> They're like, "How are they going to screw up our report?" <laughs> Anyhow, back yeah. back at it. Uh, so so uh, so they they most likely uh, once they had this web shell they, uh, on this web server, they most likely started querying Active Directory. And by the way, we know that um, we know that that it was connected to Active Directory based on a comment that a former employee made to Brian Krebs that all of their web applications uh, use Active Directory for authentication. So this server was almost certainly part of the Active Directory domain. Um, there is a, the, the next step, they, uh, they say they stole, they almost certainly stole a token using a pass-the-hash-like pass technique, uh, which would eventually give them domain admins, right? So they would, they would need to uh, run a pass-the-hash pass attack or something like Windows Credential Edit- Editor to actually pull out the, the password out of LSAS. The only thing they don't talk about here is how they came to be able to run that. So in order to run WCE or any of the past the hash types of tools, you need to have local administrator rights. So unless, unless when they drop this web shell, the, the, the process, uh, you know, they, they were running with Local administrator rights, which I don't think is the default, they they must have done some interim interim step to elevate their privileges, and that's not discussed. So, not sure about that, but kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, that's a good point, and we don't know that. Uh, I see what you're saying. In general, people consider account privilege escalation easier than actually getting the initial account. So. Yeah, depending well, on how it's run. Right, right. And I guess point is that there isn't a, there isn't a a linkage to one of the tools that did the privilege escalation, and, and mm-hmm. they don't they don't cover it here. So I just wanted to yeah. point out that there's a bit of a hole there. That's true. Um, the next thing they did was they used their uh, they used their token to create a domain admin account. Uh, and the name of that account, as as was discussed, is uh, best one underscore user, which is very similar to a account used by BM, uh, BMC product. Not exactly, not not the same, but but looks similar. And apparently caused mass confusion early on in this yeah, entire. Sure did. Right, and sure poor BMC did. was like, "Wasn't us, right? Don't know what you're talking about." That's right. That's right. So, um, you know, what one thing I never did fully here is if BMC, well, that particular BMC product was deployed in their environment. I never did hear a confirmation one way or the other on that. But, uh, but that's neither here nor there. They created this account, uh, and, you know, obviously it wasn't detected. But, and by the way, this is, this is something that should be easily detectable, right? If you are managing a domain or if you're responsible for security at a company that uses Active Directory, you ought to be really carefully managing what domain admin accounts are out there. And if you see a new one pop up, that ought to really trigger some bells and whistles for you to go and investigate. Uh, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, you ought to, you ought to have some pretty frequent process to go through and proactively uh, revalidate the accounts that are that are uh, that are there. So you know something something did happen and sneak by you you would catch it. Uh, next step was to propagate to relevant computers using their new 
admin ID. I thought this was kind of interesting and another opportunity to catch this stuff, right? So they were on a server and they ran the uh, angry IP scanner, which is about as noisy a freaking tool as you can possibly imagine. You know, if you have an IPS inside your network or, or even firewall logs and you're, you know, you're doing some kind of a drop and you start seeing a server emanating all kinds of network scan, you know, an internal server, that ought to, that ought to really set off some alarms for you to go and investigate. That's not normal and tells me that they weren't really, probably not watching or if they were, they, they assumed it was a false positive or, or what have you. Um, so, so they, uh, they used this scanner to figure out, you know, what, what they could reach out and touch. You know, obviously they, the target probably had some pretty hefty network segmentation going on. What, a, what apparently happened was they would hop to another server, figure out what that server had access to, uh, and then install port forwarders. So eventually they kind of got to where they wanted to go. You know, one server may not have access to a network, uh, but another one may be allowed from, you know, from one network into another. And that, that tells me that you really need to think, when you're thinking about network segmentation, you really need to think about network segmentation. You, you know, just ha- having everything not talk, not allowed to talk to one network except for this one server is not a great strategy because that server now becomes, you know, the, the, the relay point. Or if, or if you have to do it, you need to put some, something special around that to, uh, to make sure that it's, it's, uh, it's protected. Well, I think there's some, some pluses and minuses there. I really like not having everything be able to talk to everything, but you do have to get around. So yep. these sort of well protected bashing hosts are not a bad option. Mm hmm. But you're right. You've got to very carefully control them, harden them heavily, and have excessive amounts of monitoring on those boxes to make sure that uh, you know somebody isn't getting the keys of the kingdom and you're not aware of it. Yep. And uh, you know they they used the old standby of running PS exec to to launch some code on on uh, remote servers. That is every single freaking IPS I know of can detect that. Turn that signature on. If you see PS exec commands running in your network and, and you're not intentionally doing that, you got problems. This is a very easy thing to, to, uh, to see. I think it's an opportunity to, uh, to catch something like this. They also pointed out that, uh, they installed a window or sorry, a Microsoft tool, the, um, orchestrator service, which allowed them to, uh, to maintain persistence. So they, they they installed this service which would let them auto start their own malware they could you know they could push new malware to hosts running the service so it was a it, you know it's it's a uh, it's a standard microsoft tool that they were abusing um see so next was uh you know they uh they found the, they found a database and that database had 70 million records and unfortunately for them it wasn't uh credit card data but they stole it anyway. That was the uh, that was the contents of their you know all of their customer contact information. Uh, so they they continued moving on, and uh, apparently, uh, I guess one of the things that I'm a little frustrated about with this write up is they don't actually tell you how the methodology they push used to push the uh, the, the malware to the NPOS terminals, right? Because you have to think. That I don't remember. There was what eighteen hundred stores, and each one of those stores has you know probably twenty to thirty terminals. That's a whole lot of. Well, it's not discussed in here, but early speculation was they were all being managed by a Microsoft centralized management tool. Right, right, and they don't they yeah. don't go into that here. But that's I I have to wonder if there was a if, if that still was at play here. Either that or they ran us they they wrote some kind of script to go through and automate the the installation of this. Well, if they've got domain admin rights and all the POSs are on the admin or on the domain, oh, maybe they maybe they made a GPO. <laughs> Seriously, it, it's very doable. Yeah, they uh, made a GPO to install. Oh boy, I don't know, but nonetheless, it's we don't know. Yeah, uh, right. But right. it's something that 
what this is telling me so far is there's so many opportunities for this to have been noticed. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, well, I'll kind of circle back around to that after we get through the most of it, but uh, it tells me a lot of where we can do better. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, so, so then, uh, then they exfiltrated the, the cards. Actually, they didn't exfiltrate the cards, right? But they, uh, they, Sent the the card data from the the POS terminals to a server that had internet access, uh, where they had set up a file share, uh, and and then they wrote a script to periodically upload um, all of the the card data from each of the end terminals to this server, and then the ter- that that server in turn had a script that would FTP it out to an outside server, and you know obviously there's there's really three opportunities to catch it there. You know, your your POS terminals probably don't have a good reason to be talking to some strange server somewhere else on your network. So there's one, uh, a, rem- a network share, strange network share appearing on a server. There's number two. And number three is outbound FTP of, you know, presumably fairly large amounts of data uh, on, on some periodic basis. It, you know, this, that's probably uh, something you should be able to catch as well. We don't know if they encrypted this data before they FTP'd it out, but FTP is a clear text protocol. Right. Uh, assume they sent this in the clear. Wow. Right? I mean, that's basic DLP 101 to yeah. look for that. The other thing, interesting thing I found here is that they surmised that they went after the main database first and found that it was encrypted and protected, quote-unquote, by PCI, end quote, and that's when they shifted to the POSs. Don't right. know if that's true or not. That feels like a, uh, you know, a, a, a guess. Well, on my, my, part. my read was that they, uh, they, they, when they looked in the tw- the seventy million records, they, there there wasn't any card data, and so they weren't they weren't finding any any card data, and that told them that that they had to go off. And so I, I it wasn't clear to me if the if the card data was in in amongst that database, but it was encrypted. Or if it just wasn't there, I, I I wasn't wasn't clear on that point. Um, so so they did uh, at, at the end of this, they kind of summarize the, the, this company kind of summarized some of the thoughts, and I I just wanted to run through those a little bit. Um, the first thing is that most of the activities here were manual. There wasn't a lot of automation done, at least from from what they are able to surmise. Uh, they there's no apparent evidence at least in what's been disclosed, of any kind of command and control system. So again, it was very, very manual. However, I do want to point out that there is no description of how they maintained access after they went in. So I wonder, did they main, did they continue this entire breach operating through that web shell on that X, you know, that external or that partner vendor or web application or did they compromise some server and then do a reverse shell out or you know that that's not that's not uh, described anywhere in here so I wonder about that um, they point out that the the attackers here use mostly legitimate IT tools like PS exec and this orchestrator and quite a quite a few other things that are are fairly generic and also that most of their activities were based around hiding out in plain sight. They didn't do sophisticated things like installing root kits that would hide network traffic or, you know, open ports or, or user accounts or anything like that. They just used account names that kind of blended in and, and whatnot. So, uh, the level of technical sophistication on that was not that, that high. They just, you know, they were, they were fairly adept at what they did. And uh, in that they uh, they did use a lot of stolen credentials and not a lot of exploits. So uh, you know, kind of an interesting write up worth worth your time. I think it's about twenty pages and might be good. Yeah, and the recommendations are all pretty solid. I, I agree with most of the recommendations. Uh, I don't mean to pick on Target when I say this because I think that what I'm about to say applies to most organizations. But if they're, I have to assume their security team is just too busy. Yeah. And doesn't have the right tools in place, as well as the right staffing level to actually monitor and care about these tools and respond to alerts. 
Right. There were so many opportunities for this to have been spotted, but you need to have somebody who has the time, the wherewithal, and the knowledge to put these pieces together, look for something weird, and go track it down. And I don't see that we're staffing our security groups with that kind of model. Everybody's on a project team working on a specific rollout of a specific technology. With the socks monitoring stuff, they'll catch alerts. Yeah, with very, very defined and objective, measurable goals. And this is not something that's easy to measure. You know, this is, these are little research experiments kind of right. on a continuing basis that, so that may not turn up anything. Right. And, and so in my mind, you know, I would love to have a very senior security guy whose role is to build interesting monitoring and alerting solutions to monitor for weird stuff, go investigate weird stuff, you know, has time to just kind of peel back the layers, isn't on a, on a hardcore project Gantt chart trying to get stuff done, but has time to go sniff around and really get to know what is normal in the environment and what isn't. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, well it's said. easier said than done. Yeah. But I think we're far too reliant on blinky boxes right now. And we don't have our pulse. We don't, we're not, we don't have a hand on the pulse of our networks anymore like we used to. Right. Some of that is complexity. Some of that is incredibly difficult. Um, but I think part of it is just the way that we've built our teams and are managing them. Yep. Agreed. So, Agreed. And, and our favorite... Use two-factor authentication. Right? There you go. That, that fixes apparently everything. Every single thing. Yeah. All right. So let's move. Uh, let's move on. Our next story comes from uh, from also from CSO. The title is "Security Council Blames Breaches on Poor PCI Standard Support." Of course they do. Blame the victims, right? So, uh, so uh, basically, that is exactly what. What is being said here, the, they interview the CTO of the PCI Council, and, and they basically say they weren't compliant. And, uh, and so they, they released some tips, and I just want to briefly run through those. Uh, number one, don't store cardholder data unnecessarily. No surprise there. Number two, anoint a PCI compliance manager, because that will... That will solve it all. Concentrate on security and risk, not just compliance. Hey, <laughs> that one sounds cool. That's a brilliant idea. Continuous security monitoring is uh, of controls is number four. Uh, consider adopting standardized control frameworks such as those from ISO, NIST, and ISACA. I'll be honest with you, I my jury's still out on that one. Well, the only the only benefit from speaking from personal experience is that it helps you make sure that you've you you've comprehensively thought of things and and it points out to things that you may not have thought about before that's all fair enough um use automated control monitoring implement failure mitigation measures and respond immediately and then develop performance metrics and if you do all those things you will avoid back off apparently <laughs> well, I don't disagree with the tone of some of this, which is being compliant sometimes isn't enough. Well, no kidding. But I look back at the PCI council and go, what are you guys doing to beef up PCI? And that'll be a topic on our next show that we're going to go in depth on what's new in PCI DSS 3.0. Uh, and spoiler, not much that would affect any of the current breaches. We'll get back to that. Uh, so I still think that we've got a dysfunction going on here where organizations feel that if they're PCI compliant, that's all they need to be. Exactly. And it, it frustrates me. So get over that bar once a year and we're, we're golden. Yeah. And it's all right. I, I, yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing for them to say this. I, I think they're getting on the defensive a little bit here. Yep. But well, they have to be. I mean, this is uh the the walls are falling down around them and you have to wonder at some point you have to ask the question. Somebody has to ask the question, you know, is Target and Michaels and PF Chang's and Home Depot and 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 and, and are they all really not fo following PCI? 
I, I think that their QSA is saying they are. Yeah. Yeah. So where, where does that leave us? Well, that goes back to what we started the show with, which is, is this all acceptable shrink? Yep. And is this a manageable pain point? Going back to even the cyber insurance, is this something that the liability can be shifted enough that businesses can sustain these losses as a part of doing business and a slight increase in costs covers this sort of problem? Yeah. I don't know. And you know, one thing I wonder is what is the what is the PCI Council's ability to legislate? And I use the term legislate loosely, you know, kind of arbitrary controls. I mean, because conceivably they could just say, you know, what we we're not happy with our level of risk. You guys need to go and do some really crazy stuff, and you just have to eat it because if you want to be PCI compliant, and what what is the what happens if they do that? Well, it's interesting. I was thinking about this as well. This is actually very similar to the relationship that the NTSB has with the FAA and the airlines in that the NTSB can come out with recommendations to improve flight safety. But if those recommendations are too expensive, the FAA has a dual mandate, which is to promote aviation as well as secure, and I mean secure not in a sense against terrorism, but in a sense against reduced risk of accidents. They've got to do both. They've got this dual mandate. So by promoting aviation, they can't do anything that is too expensive or it drives the airlines out of business. So this is why things change when planes crashes and people die. So I'm wondering if it's something similar with PCI in that the PCI Council kind of needs the tacit agreement of their membership and of the major cardholders, that sort of thing. So they can't pass along anything too draconian or there will be revolt and people will say, well, we'll just stop accepting MasterCard and Visa and, and do something else or whatever. And so it's this game of chicken. Yeah, yeah. So it's a tough position for them to be in, in my mind. Now, mind you, this is completely just my wild speculation. I don't know much at all about the inner workings of PCI and the PCI Council and how this stuff comes to be. So I could be radically off base here. But my gut is that it's a similar dual mandate. They need to promote and protect at the same time because of how the PCI Council and who makes it up and where all this came from and what they're trying to do. So they kind of have to have this game of, hey, we're going to audit you, but it's in our best interest to keep you processing our credit cards because we make money, wink, wink. Yeah. And oh, you make yeah. money. Seems uh, seems like a logical, logical point. So and I was reading elsewhere earlier today that part of what these guys are starting to think about is instead of fining these organizations, take that money they would have fined them and force them to go spend it on better security. Hey, that's a quite a novel concept. It's interesting. But again, don't buy blinky boxes only. You've got to hire staff. So, yep. you know, you've got people in process are just as important as technology controls. And this is something that, that we fail at all the time. Why? Because the vendors who are preaching their blinky box can solve their problem. That's what they're selling is the blinky box. So once again, they're defining the problem space as a space they can solve. There you go. So um, anyway, that was that was I finally built up some steam for a rant. There you go. Sweet, it's, it's my rant for the show. And and now it's time to to go. So it's it's true. It's true. But we'll be back soon. We will uh, we'll be. probably record in I don't know four just more a, days. Just or, a couple of days. That's right. So and and we'll tease you with what's new in PCI DSS three That's right. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. And uh, thank you all for listening. And we will talk again next week. And uh, by the way, DerbyCon is getting precariously close. I'm sure we'll have a, you know, we'll have a table at the bar. So uh, you'll probably recognize us. I think we'll be wearing shirts or something, defensive security shirts or Maybe, not just shirts in general. Maybe, maybe they'll maybe they'll be like a sticky note, or I, I don't really know what we'll end up with yet. But you may may, may be able to uh, recognize us. We'll come up with something. So yep. watch Twitter. Watch the Defensive Sec Twitter That's account right. for details. That's right. And speaking of that, if you have any uh, questions, comments, feedback, send us an email info at defensivesecurity.org or hit us up on Twitter at defensive sec, like uh, Mr. Callet just said. You can follow Mr. Callet on Twitter himself at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. You can find back episodes, show notes, and all sorts of fun stuff 
uh, but no links to the nudie dumps. At uh, our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. And uh, with that, we will call it a week. Have a great one. Talk to you again soon. Bye. Bye.